0: The Bowery Boys, episode 161, the New York Fire Department. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Squarespace,
1: the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase, go to squarespace.com and use offer code Bowery.
0: Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Today's episode is about New York City's Bravest, the history of the men and women of the New York Fire Department. Well, we've
1: covered before in many different episodes, things about fires. We had the Great Fire of 1835, the Triangle Factory fire. We even talked about it in the Revolutionary War
0: episodes that we've done. So we thought we would take a real step back here and look at the organization as a whole. And I say organization, but for a long period of time, it was actually not organized. Or uh, loosely organized. Loosely organized. So we're going to take you on a thorough trip through the history from the beginnings of New Amsterdam to, of course, just a few years ago.
1: It was fun doing this research because not only did we get to uncover the fascinating story of the fire department, but it changed the way that I look at my neighborhood fire station. I actually understand a little bit better what's going on in there. (laughs) But Tom, I think
0: you would agree that this is also a little bit of a story of New York masculinity. How the fire department, especially in the 19th century, came to represent a certain kind of manhood. That membership in these volunteer fire departments became almost like a badge of virility. Sometimes they were up to no good. So we're gonna give you a whole batch of good and bad behaviors on this show.
1: So join us as we clear the air on the history of the New York Fire Department.
0: So before we weave our way through here, just situate us here. Give us a breakdown of... The organization as it exists today.
1: Well, the organization, the fire department of New York, yes. the FDNY, mm-hmm. it's the largest municipal fire department in the U.S. and the second only to Tokyo in the world. Hmm. It is led by two people, one fire commissioner, who's a civilian, and a fire chief, who's an officer who's worked his
0: way up through the ranks. So these two share responsibility for the entire force? Well, the commissioner is appointed by the mayor, okay. so
1: it's a political appointment. Mm-hmm. But the chief is a fireman who's right. worked his way up and really knows the game. So stick with me here. Mm-hmm. New York has 218 firehouses, okay, in the five boroughs. This is how it's broken down. Mm-hmm. Each borough has a borough command... So there are five of those. Within those, there are nine divisions. Within each division, there are four to seven battalions. Okay, so the city has 52 battalions. These are like districts, fire districts. Mm-hmm. Now, inside these battalions are fire companies. There are four
0: to eight companies within each battalion. I'm just seeing this flowchart <laughs> in my head right now, and it's really getting diversified here. It's almost like a military organization. Well, it is. Yeah. This is
1: paramilitary organization. Mm-hmm. Each company has its own captain, three lieutenants, and then 16 to 42 firefighters. Got it? Got it, yes. They're not all working at the same time. So at any given moment when they're doing a tour, there's a lieutenant or a captain plus three to five firefighters.
0: So for these 218 firehouses, this is pretty much the -the on-the-ground setup here, right? Well,
1: now here's where it gets a little bit confusing, Mm -hmm. and I had never really thought about this. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that there are people who are really fire department enthusiasts who are listening to the show. Please don't judge me. I guess I had never... (laughs) I just hadn't thought about it so much. Right. My local firehouse, which I just walked by the other day on Canal Mm -hmm. Street, there are actually two companies inside that firehouse. There is an engine company and a a ladder company. Some of the firehouses have more than one company in them.
0: So then how many companies then would this be in New York City?
1: Well, there are 198 engine companies, Mm -hmm. okay, and 143 ladder companies.
0: Though, Can I assume from those names that, of course, one company operates the actual fire engines and then the other operates another vehicle that transports the ladders to all these various fires.
1: Right. It's easy when you see, you know, the the door go up at the firehouse and all of these trucks come racing out and there's a flurry of colors and sounds and and excitement, they can kind of like blur past. Mm -hmm. Well, look a little bit more closely and you'll see that one might be a ladder Mm -hmm. company and then the other would be the engine and the engine connects to the water and operates the hoses
0: right and so the hoses would be included onto that
1: right right. now remember that the fire department is responsible for protecting new york's eight million plus residents Mm -hmm. from fires and the dangers connected to them they're also tasked with other things they do rescue work they protect us from hazardous conditions uh, including biological and chemical hazards
0: Fire comes in many different forms these days, of course
1: and many different places. There are apartment buildings, there are workplaces, there are factories, but then there are also bridges and tunnels and subways and rivers. I Mm -hmm. mean, there are lots and lots of different situations. So back to the ladder versus the engine thing. Mm -hmm. When a fire is called into a dispatcher to 911, and then it gets put through to the correct dispatcher, Mm -hmm. they have to understand what kind of situation is being called in. Is this actually a fire is it somebody stuck someplace is mm-hmm. it does it require mostly a ladder because there are situations where a ladder company is going to show up and take care of it without needing any kind of hose or needing any kind of water you don't always need a ladder you know mm-hmm. it could be a one a one floor
0: structure right, a ground a ground level fire or a street fire something like that
1: but wait, Greg, there's more. There, <laughs> there, there are additional types of companies, including squads. There are seven of those. Mm-hmm. Rescues, five of those. Haztec engines, special operations, chemical protection.
0: All essentially here just specialized units within right. this, these divisions. There are three fire boats, mm-hmm. for example. Those are their own companies.
1: So there are many, many different kinds of companies. These are all companies within the fire
0: department in New York. Doing everything from fighting five-alarm fires to perhaps even rescuing cats from trees. <laughs>
1: well, in 2013, there were 493,377 fire incidents. Almost half a
0: million? That bell rings a lot. <laughs> so how many of those were actual fires that needed to be extinguished? extinguished. Yeah,
1: Just over 25,000 of them were actual structural fires. Now, in addition to putting out those 25,000 fires Which is a lot of That's fires a lot of fire, yes There were 413 people Rescued from burning buildings I think those ladder companies 2,483 people were trapped Inside buildings or apartments 460 people were pulled out Of transportation accidents And here's my favorite Frightening <laughs> statistic Because I'm a complete claustrophobe 39,288 people were rescued Who were
0: trapped in elevators What? Okay, I am never taking the elevator again. I'm going to be part 40, of that 000. number at some point. I think
1: we need to look into this, but I swear that is a
0: stat that was provided by the FDNYs. So this is what's amazing about what you just said. That is an incredibly sophisticated chain of command Mm -hmm. with thousands upon thousands of things that they have to respond to, which leads us to go back to the very, very beginning, where, of course, we have a city that had no organization whatsoever. Of course, I'm taking us back to the beginning, to New Amsterdam, the original Dutch colony that would one day become New York. And thus, I assume we're talking about Peter Stuyvesant? In fact, it was with the arrival of Peter Stuyvesant that New York finally got some kind of a semblance of even how to fight these fires. Stuyvesant came in and whipped this Dutch colony into shape, increasing security, you know, tackling drunkenness, even roaming pigs. But another thing he dictated though was the construction of homes and new buildings because this would be the number one cause of fires in New Amsterdam. What they were not properly constructed? They would be a lot of wooden structures with chimneys and fireplaces that would not be properly cleaned, so like even just a tiny spark could erupt into a huge flame very easily back then. So Stuyvesant even commanded that fireplaces couldn't even be used on windy days. So if it was a cold, windy day, you couldn't even use your fireplace. To chilling effect. By 1657, Stuyvesant and and the city burgers hired a shoemaker to make 150 fire buckets that would then be distributed to everyone in town. And so you had to have three buckets of water that could be you know, used at any time whenever there was a fire. Did you say he hired the shoemakers to do this? He hired one shoemaker to make all of these. It's a very lucrative commission here. And why were the
1: shoemakers making the buckets?
0: Because they were made out of leather. You know, they weren't made out of wood or obviously not metal of any way. So they were leather buckets. Flash forward to, of course, the 1660s and the expulsion of the Dutch by the English and the new name for the colony of New York. A slightly more sophisticated system was put in place with regular night watchmen, or what they called the rattle watch, which were men that patrolled the city and had any number of responsibilities, fire only being one of them. They were basically the police force of the day. So they were looking for smoke or fires, or also gangs of. Yeah, anything really. Like. Criminals? Roaming animals, anything. Initially, it was a, a the Rattle Watch was six men who were required to go around the city at night calling out the hour. So that was another thing. They were also oh. a timepiece so that sleeping citizens would know what time it was so that then they could continue to sleep, <laughs> right. which I find really hilarious. Let me correct myself, by the way. The Rattle Watch actually started under Stuyvesant, but because it was an effective system, the British actually expanded it. So essentially what would happen is a fire would occur, the church bell would ring, and citizens were required to join the Rattle Watch here, if possible, and help extinguish these blazes. And then when the fire was done, the citizens were then required to then retrieve their buckets, which could be found in a mound in front of City Hall. It's amazing to see the illustrations of the
1: the fire scenes in those old days, because (laughs) they would just
0: line up in two rows, one carrying
1: buckets to the flame, and the other carrying back the empty buckets to be refilled. Well,
0: the thing to get from this is that the community was responsible for putting out these fires and for, you know, tackling these. Like, you had a little bit of a responsibility yourself by living here. In 1731, New York got its first two fire engines with great fanfare, of course, because these were extremely fancy and expensive devices. In fact, they sent over a prominent citizen, Stephen Delancey, wealthy merchant and namesake of Delancey Street. They sent him over to London to purchase them himself and bring them over. So when they were unveiled in December of 1731, hundreds of people met him at the port to see these fine fire engines.
1: Now, I'm assuming that these were pretty simple
0: affairs, comparatively. Oh, absolutely. They were basically just... Hand-operated pumps, it took up to 20 people to see-saw or lean against these levers. Water was dumped into it, and then the pumping force would be used to distribute the water. So the
1: buckets were still being used because we didn't have hoses or anything. So so the buckets were still being used to bring the water, pail by pail, to the engine where they would dump it in. So it still seems really (laughs)
0: archaic. Well, by 1730s would be the formation of the first official volunteer fire department, which would be people with normal jobs, but they would have a specific purpose just for fire. So it would no longer be like just a kind of a rattle watch. But they weren't paid. They were not paid, no. The biggest fire of this era that we should mention was a series of fires between March and April of 1741, a series of 13 fires. Many of them were clearly arson, were blamed on a conspiracy between the colony's slaves and their sympathizers. As a result of this, many people were hung, were burned. Some of them were gibbeted. You know what a gibbet is? Look it up. It's scary. It's very medieval. This was sort of the worst fire disaster before the Revolutionary War. Just to put us in the t- time frame here. Just a few years earlier was the trial of John Peter Zinger, which we did a podcast uh-huh. on, just to give you a little bit of a time frame here. I want to mention a man's name, Jacobus Staudenberg, or in fact, this name Staudenberg. He was the sort of de facto head of this volunteer fire department in 1761. His sons and grandsons and descendants would be part of volunteer fire companies for decades, almost until like the 1840s and possibly even beyond. Um, so that's, this is a sort of the first family of the Mm -hmm. New York Fire Department.
1: Okay, so if we're in the 1760s and you just said that the Great Conspiracy had been the biggest fire up until the Revolutionary War... I'm assuming that it's time
0: for another big fire. Oh yeah, in seventeen seventy-six, this you know, with the British taking over New York and running George Washington and the Continental Army out. Soon thereafter, on September twenty first, seventeen seventy-six, was a blaze that began at the Fighting Cox Tavern. A fire that grew so large, we call it the Great Fire of seventeen seventy-six. All of these fires are "Quote great," It decimated the entire city. Now, what made it a little bit better, of course, is the city was filled with British soldiers. That made it better? It made it better because they had more people to be able to fight it. There were a few drawbacks, including the fact that some of the fire buckets were actually sabotaged by who we believe to have been, of course, Washington supporters. Right. And the fire itself might have even been purposefully started. Well, these were members of the British Army. They weren't trained firemen. The people who were trained had most of them had fled the city so a lot of the city remained in ruin up until the time that the british were kicked out in 1783
1: Well, after the war, in fact, in 1798, the department reorganized and actually incorporated as the fire department of the city of New York. Although that sounds very official, it still wasn't really properly funded. And we enter a long period now in the early 19th century where these fire companies were still volunteer, Mm -hmm. even though they were officially organized and recognized. And they had to raise their own money, often, by charging for services or by having lavish balls and things Mm -hmm. like that to raise money.
0: I can almost see the Mm -hmm. organizational chart that you described early in the show. Imagine that without any connections. So, like, all of these companies fending for themselves.
1: Right. They were taking on another role in society. They were becoming not just the city's chief protector against fires, but they were also a social organization in which their members took incredible pride and not only was there pride, there was intense competition between these companies. The the competition of course could be good because it meant that when there was a fire, the the companies were racing to get to the scene yeah. of the fire faster. Yeah, people f- coming from all over the place. Right. But it could also be bad because well, as they were competing, they they could try to prevent the other companies from getting to the the fire or they could play pranks on the other companies or somehow sabotage their
0: equipment so that they weren't able to effectively combat the fire. So this is all being driven by competition, it's being driven by braggadocio. Um nice. being perhaps even in some cases by a little bit of arrogance, just wanting to put on a show almost.
1: And it was a show to a certain extent because crowds would turn out to watch the fires. Mm. So there was a lot of public excitement anytime, especially as a city. We're now, let's say, entering the 1820s and 30s, and the city's getting much larger, moving on uptown. There are more people to turn out and watch these things, more, you know, larger structures that would catch fire. So these could be spectacles. Mm-hmm. There were other men and boys who were sort of loosely affiliated with those same companies. Uh, <laughs> so the volunteers had extras? Right, um, there volunteer were hangers volunteers? On, um who would sort of hang out there because, again, these were social clubs. Clubs. these were the cool guys in the mm-hmm. neighborhood. And so boys and other men would kind of hang out around those stations. They would also, when the call would sound and they would race to the scene of the fire, these boys and men would run alongside the engines mm. or the ladders and they were called runners. They, they were loyal to the company. They'd do anything to make their company win out. You know, on top of everything else, they were there to help fill up their pumps mm-hmm. uh, with enough water. <laughs> this
0: certainly back in the days when they were still using the buckets. Right. But although I can't help but imagine that some of them didn't help with the fires at all. They just wanted to be associated with these companies.
1: I would take issue with not having anything to do with the fire because some of them would actually make the fires worse (laughs) uh, by sabotaging the, the competing companies' access to water and such and getting in fights and being unruly. Even when there wasn't a fire, they were getting in fights. So the the city's police force uh, was trying to crack down on this as well. These fire companies, because you had the engines, right, mm-hmm. the engine companies, you had the ladder companies, they would form alliances. That makes so sense, that, yeah. Right, when they would get there, they would help each other out. But then that meant that they also had rivals. And all of these were kind of loosely associated with the various gangs in the different neighborhoods. You to say, it parallels is a, it, right? yes.
0: So this is, this is cooking up a pretty nasty situation. It, just, it sounds incredibly chaotic. It almost sounds, in a way, even more disorganized than what had happened 50, 60 years ago in the past. Well, because
1: you had people who were
0: actively working against the mm-hmm. progress of putting out the fires so you've described the people who are fighting the fire or causing or the fires or not yes. so what would they, where were they using you were just inferred that there would be a pump there and a separate ladder company.
1: right right well there were some advancements um in this period thankfully in 1807 new york got its first water plug which is to say kind of an early hydrant mm-hmm. at this time there were these new water mains in new york so these plugs would stop the water they'd, they'd drill into the water mains and just stop it from coming out if you unscrewed the plug the water would either come out if there was enough pressure, or at least it gave you access to the water. That first plug was at the corner of William and Liberty Street. Oh, we
0: we know exactly where it is. That's great. Yeah.
1: Ten years later, in 1817, there would be the first hydrant introduced, which was a simple structure, kind of like the plug, but it just had a valve to turn on and off the water.
0: But this sounds to me that they're not just using buckets anymore, right? If with the evolution of the plug and the hydrant...
1: Around 1808 uh, was the introduction of riveted leather hose, and that made a huge difference because the earlier hoses just leaked all over the place. Mm -hmm. Have you ever really thought about a hose?
0: (laughs) I've never given such thought before. It's true.
1: Yeah, you don't want a leaky hose, especially when you're trying to fight a fire. In 1812, there was the first hose company. So not only did you have the engine company and the ladder company, in 1812, you had the Hose Company. And, you know, shortly thereafter, in 1819, the FDNY had officially kicked the bucket.
0: So you have all these loosely organized companies.
1: Right. And, and wait, the there's, there's one more, because one in 1831, more. there would be a hydrant company as well. So you had the companies who would race to the scene and turn on the hydrants as well, the, the closest hydrants. You've got an engine company who's mm-hmm. going to hook in, into the water, but they need the hose. So you've got the hose <laughs> company that gets it. You need the ladder company, and you need the hydrant company to even turn on the hydrants. And imagine there are multiple companies for each of those things. It's pandemonium. You see what the spectators were turning out for? There was a fire, and then
0: there was this kind of, like, madcap scene on the ground. Well, yeah, I mean, meanwhile, while this is going on, there's actual building burning. Right. With people in danger.
1: And these companies would have to work together. If the water source was too far away, or there wasn't a hydrant that was close by the fire, sometimes the engines would hook into into one of the sources of water and then pump to another engine. Got it? Mm -hmm. And then from there, pump to another engine. So they'd create this relay to the scene of the fire. But they were competing with each other often. And these guys and the runners uh, and the firemen were trying to outdo each other and show off a little bit. So they might... If they were pumping to their their big rival, they might overpump or be extra strong, <laughs> which would wash out. It was called a washout or flood the receiving engine who couldn't keep up with them. And that was a great source of shame. And meanwhile, there's, there's a, a, burning, a
0: fire. <laughs> there's a fire. Of course, the retrieval of water, the delivery of water, was made much easier in 1842 with the debut of the Croton Aqueduct.
1: That's a very good point, yes. I would like to add one other note about these engines and the pumps and the trucks. These were being pulled by the men. The firemen themselves were pulling these through the streets and, and the runners. These were not being pulled by horses.
0: Why exactly, when obviously you had hundreds of horses and you needed the men to fight the fire?
1: This takes us back to the question, I guess, of masculinity Uh and pride. These guys wanted to prove that they could handle it. What company wanted to be known
0: to sacrifice this duty that they had to some animals? Wait a minute, the town is growing big enough that, like, how would you even know there was a fire going on on the other side of town?
1: Well, beginning in 1830, they placed atop the cupola at City Hall a 24-hour watchman who would walk around the cupola and look over the town. He would look for any smoke, and if he spotted a fire, he would ring a bell, and then he would point a banner in the direction, a flag in the direction Mm -hmm. of the incident. Or if it was at night, he would point a torch. But yeah, this was the first fire bell. And as soon as anybody with a bell would hear the fire bell, they'd oh. have to ring their bell. So bells would start going
0: off a succession of bells all
1: over town. And then people would have to look towards City Hall, up to the cupola, to see what direction the, the fire was in, you know, to see what was going on. But there was not very much specific information being handed <laughs> out here, right? There are just bells going off all over, and you look and you see the direction. Well, that also meant that all the volunteers would run to their companies and the runners, and they would take off in the direction of the torch, or of the banner. Mm-hmm. Still, no specific information. <laughs> so on top of everything else, you have a chaotic scene where people are racing through the streets trying to find the fire. Dragging their engines sans horses. This would be improved in 1847 when there would be the creation of three fire districts, and later that would become eight Each had its own watchtower, and then in 1851, big improvement, when they were connected by telegraph wire, Mm. and two years later, the whole thing was rigged up. So telephone wire went to city hall, to a dispatcher, to the different watchtowers, and into the city's 68 firehouses. Finally, there was specific information being shared.
0: Now, some of the big fires during this period, the Great Fire of 1835 mm-hmm. happened, which destroyed a huge amount of the city.
1: Right. It destroyed 674 buildings. We have an entire podcast on that. So if you're interested in hearing us talk for about 45 minutes on the fire <laughs> of 1835, it's a great show. It started at a warehouse downtown, and it spread by wind throughout lower Manhattan. It destroyed the New York Stock Exchange and Delmonico's
0: restaurant, hundreds of small businesses and warehouses and shops and homes. And volunteer companies were also around, of course, during the Civil War, draft riots and conspiracy. And of course, as we know from that that story, sometimes they made those situations worse.
1: Right. In fact, it was the, quote, Black Joke Engine Company, uh, which set fire to a draft office on July 13th, 1863, when they learned that their exemption from serving in the Civil War had been revoked. So they took their revenge by setting it on fire. What followed was five days of terrible uh, riots and looting and countless fires. Ironically, fires that were put out by, by good companies. By the way, Greg, one reformer was Harry Howard, who was the chief engineer. In 1857, he mandated that firefighters sleep in the firehouses Which made it more professional and that they were always ready to like hop on board and get to the scene of the fire faster. But it also made it even more of a boys' club mentality. And this Harry Howard had a great reputation. He had moved up the ranks first as a runner, then as a fireman with the Atlantic Hose Company, number 14,
0: which was called the Bowery Boys. Oh, see, I didn't realize we we had had to wait for that. (laughs) I didn't realize we had a fire connection with this name to Harry Howard. So, especially with these fires around the Civil War, the city actually needs a proper fire department. It needs to get us act together and organize something that is far less chaotic than the situation. We'll let you know how they do that after the commercial break. And now, on April 19th, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC, To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before
1: the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham,
0: there's so much South Dakota, so little time. Back to the show. I'm going to jump in before talking about our, the, our official New York Fire Department. I want to mention the name Tweed, the mm-hmm. name of Boss Tweed. He's probably the best known volunteer fireman um, of the age and is sort of part of his mythos, his legend. The company that he was in uh, was called the Big Six. And I, the only reason I bring it up, his fire company had a tiger as the emblem, you know, so they would have these very fancy, flamboyant suits, and they would have this on, on their own banners. But that tiger would then later go on to be associated with Tammany Hall itself, uh-huh. when Boss Tweed, of course, was, became their leader. So in 1865, you know, after the Civil War draft riots, and after all of this chaos, the state of New York formed the Metropolitan Fire fire department, where in this case, men were actually paid to be firefighters. It, um, initially, they uh, were commissioned to hire 600 men with a budget of just over half a million dollars. So there was uh, some real tension going on here because, of course, you were also taking away that sense of pride when you had an official organization. Eventually, did become more attractive to these volunteers. So after begrudgingly accepting them into the city, then a lot of them did uh, apply for jobs for the Metropolitan. Now, if you were a standard fireman that worked for the Metropolitan Fire Company, you got paid $700 a year. Mm-hmm. Was uh, Which is not a lot Better than no paycheck, you know, which was a lot of these volunteer fire companies were operating under So just a few years later in 1870 uh, with Boss Tweed, actually the height of his powers, which is very interesting Was passed the, the Tweed Charter, which effectively ended state control of the Metropolitan Fire Department And so the name then was changed from the Metropolitan officially to the Fire Department of New York So it was Boss Tweed Who really created the modern FDNY? In in an indirect fashion, because the Tweed Charter moved a lot of these state organizations, it wasn't just the fire department, it was several other things, transferred it to, to city control. So yeah, in effect, Boss Tweed did have his fingerprints on the formation of the modern department. New technologies are being brought into the city to make the uh, to make fighting fires you know more efficient and more effective. For instance, in 1875, entered the first fireboat, and it was called the William F. Havemeyer, named for a man who was mayor of New York, but he's also what I would call the sugar mogul. Of Brooklyn, his sugar enterprise would eventually become Domino Sugar Factory, oh, which is wow. what you see in Williamsburg today. Sweet. Now, some of these new technologies, of course, were not perfect, and a very tragic example occurred on September 14th of 1875. Now the fire department debuted these new devices called aerial ladders, which are ladders that could, in theory, extend up to almost 100 feet into the air because as buildings are getting much taller, the old form of ladder just simply isn't going to, it's not going to work. Right. So, we're talking 100 feet. That's about 10 stories. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty big ladder. So, on this day, on September 14th of 1875, they had a lavish demonstration at Tweed Plaza, um, which is at the intersection of Canal and East Broadway and Essex, which is quite close to where we're recording right now. And, and it's on top of that, having it be Tweed Plaza, you know, yeah, very a little spooky. Little spooky, isn't it? So, these were not properly made, though. So, in front of a huge crowd of thousands who had come to see a demonstration, They extended it up to 100 feet, and they climbed on top of it, but then it cracked under the weight. Wait, how many people climbed up this thing? uh, Three firemen ultimately died from injuries sustained from falling off this broken ladder. Right here at Tweed Plaza, in fact, an investigation into these aerial ladders said, quote, The ladder, as it had been demonstrated, they were useless, and there was good reason to believe that the invention was foisted on the department at an enormous expense and by corrupt means. So even though Tweed's out of power at this time, his influence
1: on corrupting oh, yeah. lived on there.
0: Causing, you know, deaths to the fire department of which he held most dear. Things steadily improved during this era with the official fire training school. Um, everyone was required to now take classes and, and, to, and to train to be a firefighter. There was also the introduction of steam-powered fire engines, which eliminated the need for all these great numbers of men. And on top of it, this is when they reintroduced horses to pull these steam-powered fire engines. And both of those decisions were big fights
1: within the department, because of course there was the matter of pride, but then there was also the matter of employment here, and people wanted to keep their jobs and
0: do what they had always done. But the difference now in the 1880s is it was so practical to have horses and to have these steam-powered fire engines that those old methods, although people were holding on to them, just weren't workable anymore. So now we're at the Gilded Age, and of course the city is now growing at an incredible pace. Not only did the city grow in terms of, of size throughout Manhattan, but it grew vertically as the buildings got much taller. Right. In the first six months of 1894, there were 2,415 tenement fires reported just in those first six months. Wow. By 1898, with the consolidation of New York and the formation of the five boroughs, this brought all the various fire companies, because they were all operating under somewhat chaotic circumstances. So finally, with the consolidation, they were all brought under one organization.
1: Right. There had been three commissioners, in fact, and now there would just be one who worked along with the department's chief. But yeah, there were these problems. Like, how are they supposed to respond in adequate time to these fires? In 1911, they got a little assistance when they bought their first motorized engine. With actual wheels and no horses. Right, yes. a horseless engine. <laughs> um, horses would stay in service in the FDNY until 1922. So this is another example of the firefighters really putting up a fight here. They wanted to keep their horses yeah, even when the they horses. were sort of past mm-hmm. You mentioned elevators and buildings going up. I mean, not only were people getting stuck in the elevators, but there could be fires you know, way up on high floors and even these new aerial ladders couldn't necessarily
0: reach those floors. You know, you had buildings like the Woolworth Building that are crawling into the sky 30, 40, 50 stories high. And the water pressure simply wasn't strong enough to
1: reach those flames. So the city would introduce new high-pressure pumping stations in the early 1900s that would give a boost to the water pressure. And at the same time, there was, you know, a real boom in in the factories and small industries that were sprouting up all over town uh, that had terrible and unsafe conditions, uh, which called for new fire protections, including firewalls, fire escapes that were not popular with landlords because they were expensive. The fire chief at Chief Croker had, had been proposing these reforms in the department with the new building standards in calling for inspections and fireproofing, but Tammany Hall was again in charge at City Hall. And those standards that would cost landlords money were just sort of set aside. That was in 1910, 1911. That same year, 1911, in the Ash Building near Washington Square, on March 25th, on the ninth floor in the Triangle Shirtwaist Company, a fire started when some old rags started to burn. And the scene quickly got out of control as this factory, which was filled with fabrics, went up in flames. And to make matters much worse, the owner of the factory had kept the doors locked to prevent theft, which forced the trapped workers, who were mostly newly arrived immigrant women, out onto the fire escape, which ripped off the side of the building. As bystanders watched, women jumped to their death, even as the firefighters were arriving and starting to put out the fire. That fire incident resulted in 146 people dying, and General outrage in the
0: city well it was so severe but also like it was so dramatic it was in the era of journalistic photography but also because it was right off of washington square so many people saw it saw this horror with their own
1: eyes and if you'd like to hear more about that greg did a solo podcast on the triangle shirtwaist factory fire The next year, Greg, in 1912, one of the city's first skyscrapers, the Equitable Building, which was constructed in 1870 on Lower Broadway and was the first building to use passenger elevators. The Equitable burned to the ground on January 9th, 1912. During another cold winter spell, it was so cold outside that the water froze on the facade, froze on the
0: building as they were trying to put out the fire. It's memorable almost for just the visuals that come out of this. The water froze immediately, so it has this weird icicles coming off of it, but also yeah. it's still on fire. It's very strange. I'm sure you're going to put a photo of that on the blog. I will. Well,
1: because of these fires, the FDNY started pushing new fire protections and regulations much more aggressively, uh, making sure the buildings were up to code. And today, 100 years later, as anybody who works in a Manhattan office building knows, there are still fire inspections and fire training, fire marshals on every mm-hmm. floor. We can trace That, back to this time period.
0: But this still sounds like a group of men that are at least culturally dominated by Irish Catholic white men, right? I mean, that's it's all men, and it's pretty much all white at this time. Right. In
1: 1919, Wesley Williams uh, made history when he was the first African American to join the fire department. He, unsurprisingly, was not treated well at the beginning. In fact, the first day that he showed up, the captain quit. And the other men made him sleep down in the basement. And that sort of treatment would not just be applied to him, but to other African Americans who would join the force. But he just kept pushing through and persevering and rising through the ranks. In the 1940s, Williams founded the Vulcan Society to address these issues that African Americans faced when they joined the force.
0: Now, Tom, it's that time of the show where we enter the 1960s and 70s, the downturn, and it spawned quite a crisis mm. specifically for the New York Fire Department. There were, starting in the late 50s and 60s, as the city became a little bit more blighted, there were greater instances of arson for various reasons, everything from insurance fraud mm-hmm. to uh, accidental, but even political statements. People were even burning buildings down out of a certain radical rage that was happening.
1: And this is all made easier because Robert Moses this had developed all these superhighways, which made it easier for people to move outside of the city and to commute in, not live in these places, which left a lot of empty apartment buildings or
0: empty warehouses, empty structures. The number of fires from 1960 to 1977. So in 1960, it was 60,000 fires. In 1977, it was 129,000 fires. Wow. On top of that, there were tons of false alarms, of course. Almost a quarter of a million false alarms in 1970 alone. To relieve that situation is when they started placing these alarm boxes throughout the city, which we still have versions of those today. Right. In 1968, the 911 emergency number was created for the police. Department and then expanded in the 1970s to include the fire department as well. Now, I want to talk about an absolutely horrible fire that happened on October 17th of 1966. And I'm bringing it up because until September 11th, this was the worst disaster in the New York Fire Department history. It was a blaze that erupted actually on 22nd Street in an art store in a basement that was filled with flammable like lacquers and paint and all this kind of stuff. And so it created not only this like deadly fire, but it was intensely hot and trapped much of it underground. So firefighters, attempted to battle the blaze by entering a building on 23rd Street. But what happened is that building shared a cellar with the burning building. So the floor was compromised. And so all of a sudden the floor collapsed and all the firefighters fell into this burning inferno and 12 firefighters died that day. It was the biggest disaster in the fire department's history. Today, it's just a condominium, an apartment complex. It's right across the street I'm from... 23rd and th- in, in Broadway? Yeah, it's across the street Flatiron? from the Flatiron Building on the east side, and just it's just south of Madison Square Park. It's a small plaque, but you can find a plaque that honors the, the 12 men that died that particular day. So the 1970s were an absolute financial disaster in the city. Um, For the entire city. The entire city. What happened at this period to save money was this... They employed a certain policy called planned shrinkage, which... Basically, the sort of outskirts of the city, the, the parts that were less populated, poorer neighborhoods, they actually began cutting back on city services. A lot of firefighters were laid off at this time, and it was, um, there was a hiring freeze. The Bronx had 120,000 fires a year during this period. So all of these staff cuts are happening
1: at the same time that these neighborhoods need fire protection Even the most. Even more,
0: yeah. So it's, it's creating an unpleasant situation where if you lived in the Bronx, and also in Harlem and the Lower East Side. You had less services, but you also had more fires. Things were becoming way out of control. Luckily, the city was able to rehire firefighters starting in the late 70s, and the city began bailing itself out financially, of course, by the 1980s. So part of this rehiring process also meant that the first women were hired as firefighters in 1977. But just as you had mentioned with the first African American firefighter, there was great resistance within the force. Of course, sure, um, very systemic. In fact, Brenda Berkman, who was a marathon runner, a very and was a very skilled firefighter. She eventually sued New York and the FDNY for gender discrimination on on behalf of the other women because they were they would have to do these physical tests and they would all fail it. It was a very strict test and was also a way to just keep women out. But of course, today there are men and women firefighters who fight alongside each other. Now, I'm going to scoot this story up to 1993. Now, look back at all this history that we've talked about. New York had an official fire department for almost 140 years at this time. It had gone from this restless, wild crew of volunteers to units that could actually defend the city from a host of different kinds of conflagrations, from chemical and electrical blazes to explosions, both accidental and, of course, those associated with terrorism. So it was in 1993 that this was kind of starkly presented to the FDNY with the World Trade Center bombing in February when a truck bomb exploded underneath the North Tower. And of course, it was on September 11th, 2001, when both towers were destroyed in a series of terrorist attacks, which was one of the greatest tragedies in American history. In New York, on the ground and in the buildings, it killed 2,606 people. 343 firefighters lost their lives because of this attack. And then, of course, there are countless firefighters
1: uh, still alive today who live with health issues because of the fact that they were first responders. But I
0: really have to stress something here. I mean, obviously, this is and should be construed as a horrible tragedy in American history. But this is also the most successful rescue operation by the fire department in history and by the police department and the other rescue services. Thousands, thousands of people were saved that day think of the times in our story where you know the firefighting apparatus of the city was just not trustworthy that was not the case on September 11th 2001. You know, every fire that hits a city the size of New York City has the potential to be catastrophic. There's always a chance that something even small like a little kitchen fire could even today erupt into something quite serious and severe. But it is incredible to really look at the statistics and realize that there are actually very few casualties proportionate to the number of fires that happened. And all this is because we now have a fire department that is a well-oiled machine, the best it's ever been. And professionally run. Now, at this point... I would like to personally promote one final thing, and that is, of course, the New York Fire Museum. It's a 278 Spring Street between Varick and Hudson, and it's in a decommissioned firehouse. And the reason I like it is because it's a perfectly sized museum. You know, you can go through the whole thing in like 45 minutes or an hour, and it gives a very thorough history with a lot of artifacts, including several actual engines. It's amazing. But Greg? Engines
1: and trucks. And trucks. Right. There are some hose carts, too. All of the different carriages are there. It's it's a fascinating thing that kids, I think, especially would enjoy seeing those. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. The the equipment. And um, there's a lot of history for adults to get into, too.
0: And in the back, of course, there is a really wonderful 9-11 memorial specific to the firefighters who died that day. And then one final weird thing at the museum, which you'll have to search for if you're there, there was a little firefighting dog in Brooklyn in the 1920s. Went on to have a long career in helping fight fires and however a small dog can do so. Unfortunately, the dog died in 1939, but the fire company stuffed him. And today the dog is there at the museum guarding over the museum's artifacts. And what are the weirder objects in the museum, I have to say?
1: Although he is pretty cute.
0: Very adorable little dog. He
1: doesn't say much. Join us on our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, where Greg will put up all kinds of photos and illustrations of New York's Bravest and the fires that they've combated. You can also join us on
0: Twitter at Boweryboys And of course, on Facebook, we have extra content. We have extra pictures that get put up there sometimes. So please join us there as well. Thank you for joining us on this epic adventure through the history of not only the New York Fire Department, I guess, but the history of fire in New York. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.